All right. Hello. I'd like to uh, start off this sermon back in the year 2007. Um, I don't know if you remember 2007, but I remember it being a really rough year for me. In August, I got sick. And I remember at the time I was working at Fox 45 up in Baltimore as a cameraman. And the NFL season was coming up. So I was in the Baltimore Ravens locker room recording interviews. And I remember there, I was standing in the crowd of journalists, two feet away from the starting quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens, Steve McNair. And I was praying that I would not throw up on Steve McNair. I got through it. I did not throw up on Steve McNair. I went to the doctor. I got some meds. A couple days later, I was at a press conference at the Pentagon. I got through that press conference. I could barely stand, but I got through it without getting sick. I made it to the parking lot. I packed up my gear, and then I vomited in the parking lots of the Pentagon. <laughs> so the next day, I went to the doctor again, and I was diagnosed with pneumonia. And I was sick when it was all said and done for about two months. At the tail end of that time, uh, the girl I was dating, we broke up. Now in 2008, we got back together. We worked through our stuff. In 2009, we got married. Things have been great since. But in 2007, obviously, we didn't know that. And to be really melodramatic, um, in 2007, I also turned 30, which I felt like was basically the equivalent of dying because it seemed like everyone else was still in their 20s and I was 30. Uh, the good news is, for those of you who haven't turned 40 yet, 40 is a lot easier than 30, just my opinion. So why am I bringing all of this stuff up? Well, even though I was dealing with all of these problems in 2007, I still believe God was there for me and he spoke to me. Because later that year, as I was hanging out with a friend, uh, this friend gave me um, a CD. And if anyone here is too young to know what a CD is, it's, it's a round piece of plastic with a hole in the middle of it. And audio files were recorded on CDs, uh, usually music. But in this case, it was a lecture from a man by the name of Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard was a philosophy press, uh, professor from the University of Southern California. He was a Christian, he wrote some popular books, but I didn't know any of that then. But that little piece of plastic had a gigantic impact on my life. Dallas Willard taught me about the Beatitudes and the kingdom of God in a way that I hadn't heard before, even though I grew up in church. And even these past couple of weeks for me have been hard, and so revisiting this content has helped me get through that time. And so I'm hoping today, as we look at Luke chapter 6, I can share some of that illumination I received in 2007 with you today. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 6, verse 17. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So as you can tell, we're starting in verse 17. Luke 6 has got a ton of great stuff in it, but unfortunately we've got to uh, pick and choose. I want to touch briefly on this verse. 
because it happens right after Jesus has chosen his 12 disciples. And that number 12 is important because back in the day, Israel had the original 12 tribes. In the time of Jesus' ministry, those 12 tribes had shrunk to two. And it seemed like Jesus was fulfilling, to reference the title of our current series, he was fulfilling God's promise to restore Israel through these 12 disciples, which maybe isn't the way people expected it to happen, but it seemed like that's what was going on. And I wanted to touch on this too because our theme this year is discipleship. And Kenny's talked a lot about discipleship and how the word discipleship isn't actually in the Bible. But the term, as we've just seen in Luke 6, is the term disciple, I mean. And the Tyndale commentary on Luke helps us to understand what's so unique about this term disciple. A disciple was a learner, a student. But in the first century, a student did not simply study a subject. He followed a teacher. There is an element of personal attachment and disciple that is lacking in students. So being a disciple is less about going to history class and learning history from a history professor or going to biology class and learning biology from a biology professor. There's a personal relationship with a teacher that is included in being a disciple. And it's not just about learning something from that teacher. It's about learning to be like that teacher. So discipleship isn't just about reading the Bible a lot or doing a bunch of spiritual stuff. It's about learning to become like our teacher, Jesus. And in 2007, this definitely struck a chord with me as I listened to Dallas Willard. And in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he writes about discipleship. I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life. I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life. So being a disciple of Jesus means I'm trying to figure out how to be the kind of employee that Jesus would have been. I'm trying to be the kind of husband Jesus would have been even though he wasn't married. And if I'm going to make a big decision in my life, I need to pray a lot because that's what Jesus did. Before he chose his 12 disciples, he prayed all night. And even though, on, and we'll get into this later, um, even though on some level the disciples kind of weren't the greatest disciples for Jesus, on another level, they absolutely helped him fulfill God's plan of redemption. So on that level, prayer worked. So also in this passage, we read that people have been coming from all over Judea one of the last two remaining tribes of Israel to encounter Jesus. We don't know exactly where Jesus was in Luke chapter six, but it's possible people were walking up to 40 miles to see Jesus. And we find out why in Luke six, verse 18. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him and he healed everyone. People were traveling up to 40 miles to see Jesus so they could get healing. 
people were sick, they were tormented by evil spirits. The writer of Luke seems to be separating out the two. Luke may have been a physician. And we're about to get into the Beatitudes right now, but I want to make a couple of background notes. First off, if you read the Beatitudes in Luke, they're going to be different than if you read them in Matthew. And there can be a couple of reasons for this. Um, Jesus was a uh, traveling preacher. So maybe he was giving his stump sermon, and in one instance he spoke it in a certain way, but then in another instance he decided to tweak a couple of things, maybe add emphasis to certain points. Or, or maybe Luke just wanted to emphasize certain parts that Matthew did not. Uh, the differences between the two is why you might hear of Matthew's sermon being called the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon in Luke being called the Sermon on the Plain. I think it's also important for me to say that I'm not going to be able to give you the definitive interpretation of what the Beatitudes mean. Um, since 2007, I've spent a lot of time reading about them and hearing what people have to say about them. And as part of that search, I've read this book called The Beatitudes Through the Ages by Rebecca Eklund. And this is a book that talks about all the different ways the Beatitudes have been interpreted for 2,000 years by people who love Jesus way more than I do. And Eklund even made the point that maybe we shouldn't look at the Beatitudes as having just one meaning but maybe we should consider that there are multiple layers within each beatitude. So consider this Sunday a look at one of those layers and also an invitation to look at more. Eklund did make this point, however, as we struggle with passages like the Beatitudes and we wonder what they mean and what we should do with them. She cites Augustine who said this, any interpretation of the Beatitudes that does not lead to a greater love of God and neighbor is not a proper interpretation. Another controversy, I guess you could say, with the Beatitudes is who, is exa who exactly Jesus is talking to. You might have heard it said that Jesus was just talking to his disciples, that the Beatitudes are for Christians only. But when you skip ahead to Luke chapter 7, verse 1, you, we learn that Everyone who was there to receive healing was listening to Jesus speak. The Beatitudes weren't just for his disciples, but for everyone who was there. And this, of course, involves those people who came to Jesus for healing. And I think it's important for us to remember that point. Jesus is giving the Beatitudes out to people who were suffering greatly and had come a long way in the hopes of being healed. So we're going to take the Beatitudes as a message for everyone. For the disciples, Jesus is teaching them how he sees other people. And for the people themselves, he is telling them, despite their current lowly condition, despite the fact they've been suffering physically, he's telling them, you are well off. The Beatitudes are not primarily about our attitude towards God, but about God's attitude towards us. They are not about us doing something for God, but about what God is doing and will do for us. So here's Luke 6, verse 20. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, 
Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. We're going to spend a lot of time on this one particular beatitude and the words here. First, the word blessed. There are actually multiple Greek words that are translated as blessed. And one of the Greek words that's used uh, for blessed in the Beatitudes is makarios. And makarios is defined this way in the concise Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. Makarios is enjoying special advantage, blessed, privileged, fortunate, happy, in the sense of being in a special condition and thereby realizing happiness. But it's almost important to know what this word is not than to know what it is. Makarios does not mean, if I do something, I am getting a reward from God. Next, we have the word poor. That's an easy word, right? Someone who doesn't have money. But it's a little more complicated than that. Being poor had a material and a spiritual aspect to it in the time of Jesus. As we talked about before, Jesus is speaking to Jews, the last remnant of the ancient Israelites. And throughout Israel's history, what did we see? When the Israelites obeyed God, they were prosperous and well off. Think of David and Solomon, rich and powerful kings who were loyal to God. But when the Israelites turned away from God, started to serve other gods, then they became poor and oppressed. To look more into this point, let's get, dig deeper into Luke. Let's go to chapter 18, where we read the story of the, the wealthy ruler or the rich young man. He talks to Jesus, makes an absurd claim about following all the commandments since he was a kid. And then Jesus says, okay, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The rich man in response walks away. Here's Luke 18. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? So when Jesus is saying this, it's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than, through, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were surprised. They were stunned by this because they had always seen wealth as evidence that of a person earning God's favor. They had always seen wealth as evidence of earning God's favor. So being poor didn't just mean not having money. It also meant missing out on God's favor. All right, we've touched on blessed, we've touched on poor. Now we need to get to the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God just some fancy term for heaven? Sort of. I'm going to use an example. Um, hopefully it's not profane, but it's a popular TV show that a lot of you, I think, liked. And I liked it. My wife liked it. Um, I'm not saying you can become more like Jesus by watching Game of Thrones. But... Again, I, I, I think a lot of you will, help, will be able to understand the kingdom of God concept based on watching Game of Thrones. And again, if you haven't watched the show, that's all right. Please don't watch it to be more like Jesus. That, that, that won't go well. All right. So in Game of Thrones, one of the major characters was a woman named Daenerys. And she wanted to reestablish her kingdom, or as Dallas Willard would call it, her queendom, back in a place called Westeros. 
Now, to do that, she was way out in the east. She had to obviously gain territory and get a military and all of these things. But getting territory is just one part of having a kingdom. As Daenerys found out, it's one thing to have territory. It's another thing to have people in that territory do what you want them to do. And this is the vital aspect of having a kingdom. You have to be able to get your subjects to do what you command. So when we think about the kingdom of God, we should think about it this way. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. It is the place where what God wants done is done. The kingdom of God is the place where what God wants done is done. One more, one more word to look at, and that's is. We're not going to hearken back if you're old enough to the late 90s and go over the whole definition of the is, is thing. Don't worry about that. Um, but Jesus was making a point that the kingdom of God is not a faraway place. The kingdom of God is available right now. We can start living according to God's will right now. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God, what he is saying, at least in part, could go something like this. Even though you have no money and are seen as spiritually bankrupt, you are in a privileged place because I, Jesus, am giving you the chance right now to live the way God wants you to live. Throughout the Old Testament, we, if you read the Old Testament, you'll hear God defending the poor. He'll talk about people should be good to the poor. For example, he commands the Israelites to not harvest all of their grain, but to leave some left over for the poor to collect. But here, Jesus isn't talking about the poor getting leftovers. He isn't talking about getting by. He is telling the poor, you are well off. You are harvesting the grain now. The fields belong to you now. Jesus continues by calling the hungry blessed, by calling those who weep blessed, by calling those who are persecuted for following him blessed. And Dallas Willard sums up the Beatitudes in this way. They serve to clarify Jesus' fundamental message, the free availability of God's rule and righteousness to all of humanity through reliance upon Jesus himself, the person now loose in the world among us. They do this simply by taking those who, from the human point of view, are regarded as most helpless, most beyond all possibility of God's blessing or even interest, and exhibiting them as enjoying God's touch and abundant provision from the heavens. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Why are people suffering like they are? More importantly, what's God doing about it? The answer lies in part in the Beatitudes. He is telling us our current troubles do not define us. Even when we are poor, hungry, in mourning over terrible loss, being arrested, tortured, or even killed for following Jesus, we are well off. The Beatitudes are a declaration to us that God is going to end all the bad we have to suffer in life, 
the hungry will be satisfied. The weeping will stop weeping and will begin to laugh. And those who are persecuted will be rewarded. Our future is secure. And we can be reminded of that over and over again when we read the Beatitudes, God's attitude towards us. Now, I want to remind you of something Kenny talked about. Uh, he talked about Luke chapter 4 a couple weeks ago. And he mentioned how Jesus was talking powerfully about salvation coming to the poor. But then he keeps going and he gets people really upset, so much so that people want to kill him. And in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus keeps talking. And I remember rereading this part of the Sermon on the Plain, and it definitely made me uncomfortable. Here's Luke 6, 24. What sorrow awaits you who are rich? For you have your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now? For a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now? For your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds? For their ancestors also praised false prophets. Uh, this passage is described by Dallas Willard as the woes. And if you, if you read um, whatever Bible you're reading, you're, you might hear these be said as, woe to you who are rich. I am not rich by American standards. I don't take private jets to Miami for long weekends. I don't have a car that catches people's attention. But compared to the millions of people around the world, I mean, I'm rich. I'm not hungry. I have the food I need. I don't have a big house by American standards, but I still have a house that's that's bigger than a lot of houses throughout the world. 2007 was rough. The past couple of weeks have been rough. But I'm not mourning over deep loss like the word weeping implies. The Pew Research Group tells us that Christianity is slowly dying in the US. But I have not been kidnapped and brutalized like my sisters in Christ in Nigeria and Afghanistan and Eritrea. When Jesus says, woe to the rich, he is telling me, just because I have a car and a house and a steady job does not mean I have earned God's approval. I have not earned God's endorsement to keep living my life however I want. So in Luke 6, Jesus is lifting up the poor who think they are too low for God's notice and bringing down the rich by reminding them, by reminding me, I don't have God's seal of approval. What Jesus is not telling us is that all poor people are going to heaven and all rich people are going to hell. Rather, as Jonathan Pennington writes in his book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, the beatitudes and the woes are invitations to living, not divine speech of reward and cursing. In other words, we should look at the Beatitudes and the woes as invitations for ourselves to enter the kingdom of God. This is not about Jesus passing final judgment on us. This is the beginning of a journey of traveling with Jesus as our teacher. 
After inviting people into his kingdom, Jesus then teaches us how to live once they are in that place where what God wants done is done. Here's Luke 6, 27. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you. Jesus said it. If you're a Democrat, love Republicans. If you follow Trump, love Biden. If you are pro-abortion, love those who are anti-abortion. If you are Ukrainian, love Russians. And if we're going to keep going in Luke chapter 6, we're going to find even more difficult things for Jesus to have us do, which as I'm looking through this material, putting it together for a sermon, I start thinking, do I even want to be a part of the kingdom of God? It just seems too difficult to even consider. But then there's one last passage to look at in Luke 6 that really helped me as I struggled with this. Starting in verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High because he is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. So here's more difficult stuff, right? Loving your enemies, lending while expecting nothing back, that's, that's crazy. But Jesus isn't asking us to do things he hasn't already done. He is asking us to be like him, to be like the God who is kind to us, even though I can be an ungrateful and evil person. Even though this passage had a big impact on me in 2007, I, I was wondering this week if it had any impact on me at all. Have I actually changed? Have I actually embraced anything Jesus said here? And I've definitely felt some sadness about it. And I see this line from Luke, he is kind to ungrateful and evil people. And even this morning, as I was going over this sermon the, the last time, something clicked with me. That, that passage with the disciples, the 12 disciples who were selected to help fulfill God's plan to restore Israel, those 12 disciples, at best, ran out on Jesus, and at worst, they outright betrayed him. And yet, he still picked them. And he was willing to restore his relationship with all of them. If Judas had come back to him, Jesus would have forgiven him and restored him. So if I dwell on that, if I let the love of God for me permeate every ounce of my being, then maybe I can learn to be loving and merciful like God is. And if Jesus could heal all of those people like Luke says he did, Maybe he can empower me to love the way he wants me to. So um, a few months back, I gave a sermon here, and I got some positive feedback about how beneficial it can be to spend some time meditating on everything I just said. So I Frankenstein together a little summary of Luke 6. Um, and we're going to read this over three times. 
And I'm going to give you the time to, to dwell on this passage and, and hopefully let it affect you deep inside. And then we're going to take communion. And so you can spend this time thinking about what's been said. You can ignore what I've said. That's totally fine. Or maybe there's a particular interpretation of the beatitude that speaks more to you. Maybe now this is the time to dwell on that. But now let's just take some time to, to meditate on what Jesus has told us, what he's trying to teach us in Luke 6. They came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases, and those who suffered from unclean spirits were cured. Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort already. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to ungrateful and evil people. They came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases, and those who suffered from unclean spirits were cured. Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort already. Love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to ungrateful and evil people. They came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases, and those who suffered from unclean spirits were cured. Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort already. Love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to ungrateful and evil people.